This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. By setting standards and recommended practices for all scales, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin, the guy on the other side of the cab who shovels the coal and occasionally other stuff. No argument from me on that. We're glad you've carved a little time out of your busy schedule to give us a listen. In return, we're rewarding you with two highly creative and talented guests, each an icon on his respective side of the pond. Yes, indeed. From the UK, we have Gordon Gravitt, a man whose tree-building talents are deeply rooted. We're going out on a limb to say no one builds better-looking model trees than this guy. You can catch that interview just a little later on. First, though, it's Jim's turn in the comfy chair as he chats with renowned New England modeler Dave Frary. My next guest has been a contributor to far too many publications over the years to name them all, but suffice it to say, if you've read any of the larger publications, you already know the name Dave Frary. Dave's a renowned modeler, writer, and photographer, but if two things in the world of model railroading can define Dave, it's his Thatcher's Inlet team-up with Bob Hayden back in the 70s, and his groundbreaking scenery book, How to Build Realistic Model Railroad Scenery, now in its third printing. If you want to see what David is capable of, just check out the cover of the May-June 2011 Narrow Gauge and Short Line Gazette. In that, Dave describes the construction of an ON30 waterfront layout for the Nantucket Whaling Museum. Check out the link on our website. It was that cover story that got us thinking it might be instructive to chat with Dave about the differing demands and expectations of building a layout for a museum rather than for oneself. Dave Frary, welcome to the show. This is a treat for me. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoy being here. Now, you do some podcasting yourself, don't you? Yeah, we have the Pollock car, which I think is available on iTunes. It's a free download. We don't have a regular schedule. We do it monthly or so. And I do it with Jimmy Dignan and Doug Fiscali, sometimes with Hal Reynolds. The other three fellows I mentioned are kit manufacturers, and they bring me in because I have all the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to get a note to come on this show? No. Oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> no, not anymore. I've outgrown that phase of my life. Okay. Well, just to make sure we point people in the right direction, the full name of the museum is the Nantucket Historical Association Whaling Museum, correct? Yes, that's correct. The Nantucket Historical Association operates about... 20 historic places on the island of Nantucket, and the Whaling Museum is one of them. And the Whaling Museum is the one that gets the most foot traffic. I can see why. I'd head there just to see the layout. Well, the layout itself is in a second floor room. It's about 28 feet long, and it's 4 feet wide at the widest spot. And it's a model of the Nantucket Railroad as it looked in 1910. And I picked 1910 because the island itself went through a great many transitions from the late 1880s through to World War I. 1910 was when the railroad was the most active and we could actually pin down structures, their placement. Everything on the island has been moved. Some of the buildings have been moved three or four times. It was expensive to transport wood and shingles and masonry products and things to the island. So they reused everything. Everything was recycled. The railroad is kind of unique because it operated from 1881 to 1917. In 1917, they scrapped the whole operation. They sent all the iron and steel to France for the war effort. They scrapped everything. The railroad was a three-foot gauge railroad, and its sole purpose was to bring tourists from the ferry dock in Nantucket 
Nantucket town to the resort hotels in Sconset, which are about 12 miles away from Nantucket on the eastern shore of the island. And is that 12 miles you've tried to squeeze into 28 feet? Yeah. Pretty good, I'd <laughs> yeah. say. I'd say you've done pretty yeah. well. So what's the backstory on the project here, Dave? In 2005, Hal Reynolds... He owns a company called Atlantic Scale Modelers and Creative Images, and he works with me on projects. We worked together, and we built an 8-foot by 32-foot Lionel layout for a customer near Boston. The man is a very prestigious man, and like a lot of the people I've worked for, I can't mention his name or talk about him, and I don't want to sound like secret squirrel here, but that was the agreement. And at the time, the customer was on the board of directors of the Nantucket Historical Association. And at one of the meetings, the topic of the railroad and having a display to represent the island's railroad came up, and my customer suggested they talk with me. And so I went to the island, and I brought them some examples of other work I'd done, and they decided to retain me, and the deal was that I would put together a proposal to show them what I had in mind. They gave me access to their photo and map collection, and I spent about two weeks building a half-inch scale model of the proposed project. I went back to the island with the model. We discussed it, how it would be presented, and then they gave me the go-ahead. They retained me to build it. We negotiated a price, signed a contract, and off I went. Well, I'm impressed with the consistency of the work. You had quite a number of people helping you out with this. Is it their ability to adapt their skills to what you needed, or did you simply look up folks with compatible skills? Everyone I've ever worked with, I know ahead of time, and I know exactly what their strengths are. And so here was the process I used. I drew a full-size 12 inches to the foot plan of the project. And the plan laid out on my floor in my workshop, and it showed where the track and the structures and all of the scenery would go. Then I built four tables that would bolt together in the museum for the final display. And the sections had to be portable because they had to fit in a truck for the ferry ride from here on Cape Cod, where I live, to the island Nantucket, which is about 17 miles offshore. So during the planning stage, I studied the photos they provided to me. And I decided which structures to build and which ones not to build. And I picked ones near the track that people could recognize because many of them are still around that area where the railroad ran, even to this day. The railroad used a three-foot American-type engine, and they had a three-foot Mason bogey that they rented from the Boston Revere Beach and Lynn Railroad. I decided on using the Bachman equipment. I used the ON3040 engine as the main engine on the display, and I repainted it, and I made decals, and we made it look as much as we could like the engine that ran in Nantucket in 1910. There were several other unique pieces of equipment that the railroad used, and some of them were really, really funny looking. And I hired Bob Hayden to build the baggage car, which looked a lot like the European baggage wagons, where it was a flat car with a box on it. And you see it in the tropics also on some of the sugarcane railroads, where they moved the people in the box, which sat on the flat car. So Bob Hayden scratch-built that for me, and he also scratch-built something they called on the island the bug and the bird cage. The bug was a three-foot Fairbanks Moss motor car, and the trailer was called the bird cage. And the trailer had some seats in it, and they could move passengers in the winter months. They could deliver the newspapers to the other end of the island, and they could fulfill the mail contract with the bug and the bird cage. 
When the plan was more or less complete, I contacted Hal Reynolds. He would be building several of the models on the project for me. And I wanted to give him a heads up because I wanted him to know what I had planned for him. And what I did, I put together all the materials he'd need, him and everybody else, to build these models. Hal also made me a Photoshop backdrop that was 31 feet long and 30 inches high. This was installed on the back of the display using Velcro, and the images he put together on that were images I had taken on my many trips to Nantucket, images he took in Canada of the seashore there, and pictures from the historic collection, which went back 100 years. So he put this all together, some of the images, the old images he had to color, and he made a beautiful backdrop. It's amazing. It's really something. I think it has over 100 layers in Photoshop, if you're familiar with Photoshop. (laughs) Anyway, what I had to do to get everyone up to speed, all the people I was going to use to build things for me, I had to manufacture cedar, shingle, siding, and roof material. The shingles on the island were different than, say, the Western-style shakes. They only used five inches to the weather because they wanted the siding to be weather tight. And the shingles themselves were cheap and they were easy for anybody to install at the time. So I built the patents for the walls, made RTV molds of them, and then I made castings in those molds and sent the castings to the people who were going to build the buildings. And every building except the railroad buildings had shingle walls and roofs. Uh, For the windows, I used windows from Dave Grant at Grantline. I had Doug Foscali of Foscale Models laser cut some scale windows for me. He also laser cut some really intricate hotel railing details and roof brackets and things of that nature. Brian Bollinger of Best Trains, he cut me dozens of sheets of asphalt shingles for the hotel roofs. I used Carol Vreeland of Sterling Models to make me several dozen dwarf pine trees like you'd see on the island. And I used Dally Electronics to design the train controller. I called Dallas Gutacker, who owns Dally. I told him what I had in mind. It had to be an interactive display. The train would run, stop at the stations, and it would be operated by push buttons. The push button would lock out while the train was running. So you couldn't push the button a million times and get the train to stop, start, or any of that. And he designed the circuitry, and it's still running today. In fact, I've used his circuits on other projects. Well, you know it works. Yeah, yeah, they're very reliable. (laughs) You've got some quality components and some real quality people here, Dave. I'm telling you, we're getting a clinic, and I I thank you for it. Is there a different level of expectation that comes with building a layout for a museum? Is, Is there anything different in that than building a home layout? For me, it's all the same, you know. I always try to do my best work, and all of the work I've done in the past 25 years have been for customers and the goal is always to give them more than they expect. I want the quality to be the best I can do because they're paying top dollar for this work and the cost of a project like this of only about 10% of it is for materials. All the rest is labor so it's very expensive. As you know from building your own layout at home it's very time consuming. Time is really the biggest component. It's fun to think of a big reveal moment where you whip the sheets off of this thing and everybody goes (laughs) off. I guess it doesn't happen like that, does it? They want to check in from time to time. Well, as I was building this, the curator would travel off-island to go to different events and personal things, and he'd always stop by my house to see what I was doing. Then when we moved the layout, we moved it in a 25-foot box truck to the island via the ferry. I hired another fellow who lived on the island to help me unload the truck and to help me set it up. While I was putting this thing together, of course, word got out, 
and everyone came to see what I was doing. The museum was closed to the public at the time when I was setting it up. I mean, they even had the newspaper come and took pictures of this thing before it was even completed. It was really interesting. It's a great story of a great project. Let's move on to a few other things. How did you hook up with Bob Hayden? What's the story there? Because you guys, you know, it's like salt and pepper. Or Yeah, he lived down the street, and his father was my Spanish teacher in high school. We had a mutual friend, a fellow named Alan Hansen, who, by the way, was trying to build ON2 railroad equipment, and he also was building HO into model railroad equipment and he scratch built everything he was a machinist by trade and he introduced bob to me as a teenager bob was also trying to build hon2 engines and cars but he couldn't get anything to run very well which is still the story of hon2 <laughs> yeah. and bob worked after school at the local hobby shop and i'd go there i was i'm seven years older than bob so i'd go there in the afternoons or a saturday afternoon and he'd show me all the new stuff he'd put it aside so he could show me look at the new atherin equipment and everything that came out and it was really exciting time for us because we thought we were on the cutting edge of the hobby you know in those days bob and i worked together when he was in the navy i was doing product reviews for railroad model craftsmen and one year i think it was 1976 we did 80 craftsmen reviews and the way we did it was I'd build the model and take a picture of it. And then I'd send everything to Bob with all of my notes about building it. And he'd write the review, mail it back to me. And then I'd send it to Tony Costa, who was the editor of RMC at the time. And he'd edit it some more and then put it in the magazine. All during this time, I never knew where Bob was. I knew he was in the Navy. And it wasn't until 10 years after he got home that I found out he was involved under the South China Sea on a submarine. I've heard that of in-depth product reviews, but that's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's right, in-depth. We stopped counting. Bob and I stopped counting in 1991. We used to keep a database of all of the stuff we'd written, all the pictures published and articles and things. By 1991, we had published 539 articles, photos, or product reviews. And that wasn't just in RMC. There was some in the course, Gazette yeah. or Fine Lines in those days and in several other publications. Yeah. Well, of all of those, I'm thinking the Thatcher's Inlet series back in the 70s in uh, RMC. That's got to be one of your most influential. You still hear about that? At every model railroad show or clinic presentation that I've attended, since the articles came out, someone always comes to me and says, I want to thank you and Bob for publishing the Thatcher's Inlet series because it had a great influence on me. And we're kind of proud of that. You know, people still think of that as something that got them started in the hobby. And it was, I think, I don't know, you know, I'm, now I'm looking back, but I think it was probably the right article at the right time to influence some people. And unbeknownst to us, you know, all we were, were a couple of kids fooling around with trains that we bought cheaply yeah. in Woolworths. But you did it in HO, didn't you? Uh, yeah, it was HO and, and the, the, all of the techniques were really a, a precursor, uh, getting folks uh, in the right mindset, I guess, for all of this Backman ON30 stuff, wasn't it? Yep, yeah, Because yep. you yep. could just transpose the whole thing over. Absolutely. Well, in fact, you, uh, a fellow at Bachman right now, one of the executives there, was one of our fans when we were <laughs> younger. And I think that started. Well, there you go. Well, listen, if you got people interested in model railroading, keeping them in, I think, is equally important. A lot of people shy away from scenery. I've got to say, I think your book, How to Build the Realistic Model Railway Scenery, was a huge leap forward when it was first printed 30 years ago because of the water-soluble scenery techniques and showing people that it didn't have to be art, it could be a doable process. How did that book come to be? When Bob retired from the Navy, uh, he was looking 
looking for a job, and he saw an ad in Model Railroad, and they were looking for an assistant books editor for Comeback Books, which was a separate part of the organization. Bob applied, and he got the job, and he worked there for probably two or three years. And his boss left for a newspaper job, and they promoted Bob to be books editor. And at the time, Bill McClanahan's scenery book was the most popular book that Kalmbach published. Bob wanted to revise and modernize that book, but Bill was at retirement age then, and he didn't feel like doing it. He thought the book had run its course and that, well, he'd be wasting his time if he spent another year of his life, you know, revising. Well, and, and you know, it might have been a correct observation on his part, because obviously we were past, I guess zip texturing was just on the way out then, and uh, I don't think <laughs> yeah. people were dumping asbestos into plaster anymore. So Yeah, that's true. Well, that's mm-hmm. what that book needed at the time. So Bob asked me, he said, would I be interested? in doing a scenery book and you know i'm thinking wow here i am working three jobs and (laughs) anyway i took a year of my life of doing the research and the actual typing of the pages over and over and over again and i did it in my cellar at night i lived in another town on the north shore of boston but i got the book done and it was a success from the beginning because i took a this is no secret i took a graduated royalty in other words, I wanted to get paid on the back end. I figured the book could have legs like yeah. it did for Bill McClanahan, and it did, and it worked. Great. Why are some people, even with the simplified methods and improved materials of today, so afraid to try scenery? I don't know, but I think it has the art context. You have to be an artist, you know, and most people think, oh, I'm not an artist. When we talked about doing the book, Bob's idea was to make it like a cookbook so that you had recipes. In fact, he was even thinking of, and in some places in the original book, you'll see these things that look like recipe cards. The deal was that if you mixed these ingredients in these proportions, you'd get something that worked for you and you'd like the outcome. That was the premise. And it worked some of the time and some of the time. Some of the materials I used, other people couldn't get. So I was always getting letters in the mail that somebody couldn't find green gold, which was (laughs) a color that Liquitex produced. Mm -hmm. But I'm allergic to solvents. I break out in like hives if I'm around kerosene. So at the time, acrylic paints and acrylic mediums were just becoming popular. And I spent my youth as an art student, and I used to frequent the art shops, and I kept up with the new acrylic products, and I used them as the basis for the scenery that I was going to build. And the water-soluble method developed because the acrylic products were cheap and easily available to everyone at the time, and it was just fortunate for us. Now, when we say water-soluble, the plaster you mix with water, it doesn't have to be totally dry before you put the water-based paint on it. That doesn't have to be dry before you put the water-based glue on it, and that's basically it, right? When you sprinkle your textures yeah. on, you spray on more glue. Dilute matte medium I was yeah. using at the time, and I didn't invent dilute matte medium. Lynn Westcott did in Model Railroad, and he wrote about it years ago when it first came out, and nobody picked up on it. And it's the perfect glue for scenery building because it dries clear and it's invisible and has no shine to it. But once it dries, you can put more water over it and it doesn't soften again. It stays as an adhesive. In your experience, Dave, what aspects of scenery building frighten modelers the most or do you think are the most difficult to present realistically? Well, I think it's water. 
you know, I have more questions about modeling water, I think, than any other. In fact, while I was sitting here waiting for the interview to start, I got an email from a dentist in Florida wanting to know how to use Mod Podge, which is one of the materials I demonstrate in my DVD on building water and I wrote about when it first became available. And it's a process building water that most people are afraid to try it because if it doesn't work, they're stuck with a big messy area that doesn't look much like water. <laughs> well, that's why you practice first, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you, yeah. I always say, yeah. you know, go off and build a little bit of scenery on the side and try out the techniques until you get them so you like them. Uh, This has been a great chat, Dave. Just tell us quickly, we're going to give you a chance to sell some stuff here. Tell us about some of your other books and DVDs. Well, the same book is still in print, and it's for sale through my website, which I'm sure you'll list on some place there. And I also have downloadable videos about single-concept scenery building, how how to carve rocks and styrofoam, you know, how to paint a backdrop and that stuff. And I have my regular DVDs. There's eight of them, and they go from rocks and basic scenery right through to building easy scenery techniques. So there's eight of them in there, some of them about painting structures, casting, building water, a lot of single-topic DVDs where I cover the subject in about an hour. They're available through the website. And the website, we have a link to it right on our homepage. So we'll send them to you, David. Dave, the hobby's better for having you in it. Thank you. And thank you so much for uh, being with us here on the Model Railway Show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, thanks, Jim, and thanks, Dave. You know, when you were recording that interview, you were actually up here, and I had to give Dave a little bit of good-natured needling because it was his stories with Bob Hayden about the HON30 Carabasset and Dead yes. River that got me interested in O-scale two-foot modeling. I spent seven years doing that and found it highly entertaining but also frustrating at times, and then I had to disappear and retreat to S-scale. Well, what can we say? They photographed really well. They certainly did, yes. You know, Dave's book came out in the 70s just about the time I I was scenicking my first serious attempt at doing model railroad scenery. And the water-soluble techniques, I've never used anything else. It's the only way to go when you're building model railway scenery. And he proved it's possible. Any any klutz can do it. I'm proof. I found it interesting. He said he and Bob had more than 500 pieces published in various magazines and things. I guess they've hit their author certificate for their master model railroader on that pretty handily. One would think. And I guess we'd better get cracking if we want to be a team. I think so, yes. (laughs) Well, just a reminder, folks, you can find us on Facebook. And the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. Trevor's turn now as he plants a seed and grows an interview about modeling trees, but not your ordinary layout variety specimens. Joyce Kilmer wrote in 1913, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. That certainly applies if you look at the model trees crafted by my guest today. Gordon Gravitt lives in the United Kingdom, but models the narrow-gauge lines across the English Channel in Brittany in 1 to 50 scale. We'll ask him about his model railway, but he's really here because of two books that have had a tremendous influence on me and many other modelers looking to build better layouts. The books are called Modeling Trees, Volume 1 and Volume 2, covering broadleaf species and conifers, respectively. They're both available from Wild Swan Publications in the UK. We'll have ordering information in the guide to this episode, plus links to some photos of Gordon's exquisite trees, so be sure to check that out at themodelrailwayshow.com. 
Gordon is a member of the Crawley Model Railway Society and the Mendip Model Railway Group in the UK and joins me from his home in Somerset. Gordon, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thank you very much for inviting me to take part. As model railway enthusiasts, we often invest great effort in building models of locomotives, rolling stock and structures, yet trees and other scenic features are often poorly realised. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm sure that most modellers, like myself, started in the hobby through an existing interest in railways. And certainly for me, this was primarily an interest in the actual trains and their makeup, and later on, other aspects of railways generally. And I think that many still regard the actual railway and its operation as their main interest. Do you feel that we're doing a disservice to other aspects of our model railways when we set our models in a poorly rendered scene? What's the opportunity we're missing out on here? Well, it's only when we start to consider our railways as part of a larger scene that we can appreciate the landscape through which they're running. My own interest in modelling is trying to capture the atmosphere of whatever area it may be, putting the railway into a context, and that includes the topography, the local building styles, and naturally the type of trees that grow there. Your tree models are absolutely museum quality. When did you first become interested in finding a better way to model trees? I think we're always trying to improve our results, either by practising and becoming more proficient at existing skills, or looking for alternative methods. An ally to both of these is taking a lot more notice of the real thing. It's this last point, taking notice of the real thing, that really became apparent to me in the mid-80s when I was researching an O-gauge layout. Based in my home county of Sussex, I took loads of photographs of all manner of things try and get all the right atmosphere, including trees. And that's followed on ever since. Now, did you learn your techniques from others or devise your own techniques or was it a combination of these things? I've certainly had ideas of my own, but the chances are that someone somewhere has been thinking along similar lines. So I wouldn't claim that any of my methods are totally original. The great thing about this hobby is all modelling techniques get shared. I'm certainly finding that myself when I read your book. I'm adapting what you're doing to make the materials that I have available to me work in that situation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But we've been talking about model trees, but really we should be more specific, shouldn't we? You actually model particular species of tree and sometimes even build models of a specific real tree. What story does that help convey on your layout? Well, in many situations, the presence of particular species of types of tree can help to clarify the location of a scene or, or layout. Also, working from a photograph or a real tree, if it's an option, makes it easier to capture the shape and character of that tree. It also helps when it comes to including details that might otherwise not have noticed, such as splits in the trunk, scars in old fallen branches, ivy growth, and the colouring of the trunk. They're very rarely brown, you know. That's true, yes. Your trunks range from a grey to almost black and sometimes with some green in them. Listeners who pick up your books are going to see that, of course. Where do you start on a tree? Is it gathering the prototype information? I'm wondering whether you plan the tree first or whether you plan the location on the layout that it's going to occupy or how do you decide what tree you're putting where? The location on the layout or within the scene is the first consideration. And once that's been established, I have some idea of the height and spread of a tree that would fit within the picture I'm trying to create. Once I know the sort of tree I want to model, I look out for a real one to photograph and use that as a reference. I always thought I knew what trees looked like, but some of my earlier models clearly show that I didn't. Do you have a particular favourite type of tree that you like to model? Is there one species that you say, this is just so enjoyable doing this tree? No, 
I've got a fascination for many of the old misshapen ones, really, um, especially if they include dead branches and just general sort of a contrast with the sort of fresh green foliage, twisted and gnarled trunks make interesting shapes and often great variation in the colouring. But I think we all have to be careful about only modelling interesting subjects. It's nice to include the odd tree of character, but real-life scenes can often be very mundane and usually look more convincing if modelled that way. So I guess modelling one of those unusual trees, say one that is exposed to a wind and so it's all growing to one side, becomes an accent on the layout rather than if every tree looked like that, it would look unrealistic. Oh, very much so. Yes, it's, uh, they, they are very enjoyable specimens, but it can easily be overdone. I suppose that those types of trees are fun to model, but they may not be the best place for someone to start. What do you suggest as a place for other modelers to start with a tree? Is there a particular species that's maybe easier than another? Or? I'm not sure about any specific species, but I would certainly start with something fairly simple. Not too many branches or fine twigs, and just get the hang of twisting the wires and creating convincing shapes. Even small trees can have interesting shapes. Trees in exposed places, maybe growing in poor soil or on rocky outcrops, often remain small and could make ideal models to start with. On my own layout, I have a forested area, and I'm actually using that to, as you say, practice twisting the wires, because I know that I'm going to be putting other trees in front of those. So I'm making tall, narrow trees with just a canopy at the top in order to get used to putting the bark on, twisting the wires, applying the foliage, things like that. Certainly, as a starter, to sort of work on things that are not say going to be hidden, but certainly maybe more to the background it is a good starting point. And then as you get more confident, so we can sort of build more intricate and specimen trees to take a closer view of. I mean, some of the conifers, the, the generic conifers, come together very quickly if they're appropriate for a scene. They could make a very quick starter for somebody to get their hand in. Now, what about difficult trees? Is there a species that you've built that you say, I hope I never have to build another one of these? Well, not really. I enjoy most challenges in modelling. But for the Broadleaf book, I did make a willow which had numerous very fine wire branches. And, oh, it seemed to take forever to make that one, did. There are some types that I haven't uh, tried to make. I'm not really sure where I'd start. Palms come to mind, although I have seen some done for a Greek layout using some kind of feathers for the leaves. They look very impressive, but I don't know where I'd start with those. Probably buying a bird. <laughs> <laughs> we tend to make our model trees too small, don't we? What are the advantages to actually building a model tree full size as you do? Yeah, model trees do tend to be small, but then, especially in the UK, where many of our layouts are portable and relatively small, the whole area being modelled is subject to a fair amount of compression. So making trees smaller than they ought to be keeps them in proportion with the surroundings and avoids them dominating the scene. I usually think of a scale height tree, even a fairly moderate one, as being the height of a railway carriage on end. And for us, that's about 60, 70 foot. Obviously, if the layout's large enough, full-size trees you know, look a lot better. 
But I think we have to sort of remember that they also take up a lot more width as well as just the height. So I suppose there's some advantages to making them slightly smaller than full size, but at some point you're going to stretch the plausibility of that tree. And when they start becoming only as high as the equipment on the rails, then the scene suffers a bit, doesn't it? Oh, certainly, yes. As I say, they've got to keep in proportion. Trees in general would be higher than our two-storey buildings, for instance. And it's just a case of keeping everything in proportion. Oh, I take your point. I mean, you can diminish them far too much. But equally, they can get very dominant if they're too large or even made to scale on a very small scene. I guess a little bit of practice, maybe doing some wire armatures and putting them in the scene to see how they look. And you say, well, I need to clip that down a bit or something like that would work. Your tree models take quite a bit of time. I know when I look through your book, some of them take 10 hours. Some, you said, took 35 hours. Modelers are happy to invest time in building a locomotive, a passenger car, a depot, but they tend to look for a quick and easy answer to modeling scenery, whether it's trees or grass or other things. Do people balk at spending several hours at one tree? And when you talk to them, maybe at exhibitions, how do you address that to encourage them to give it a go? That's a difficult one. I think the encouragement really should come from the actual appreciating your surroundings and and wanting to make a good fist of of modelling the scene. We tend to be a fairly observant lot. We go out and take notice of what's around the railway as well as the railway equipment. You know, if we do that, we might spend a bit more time modelling it. And the landscape's always there long after the train's departed. That's very true, yes, and people can spend a lot of time just enjoying the landscape when there is no train in the scene. We should mention also, I, I don't want to scare off listeners by saying 35 hours a tree, so we should mention that not every tree on a layout needs to be a fully detailed contest quality model. You build trees to different levels of detail depending on their role on the layout, and you illustrate that in your book. You have some very basic versions of an elm, for instance, and then very complex versions of an elm. How do you decide how much time to invest in each model tree that you build yeah they do exhibit different levels of detail and some standalone trees in the foreground would certainly be a lot more detailed and take a lot longer i don't worry too much on the time side it's all enjoyable modeling to me and at the end of it if i get the results i want that time is just very enjoyable hobby time for myself Having said that, something in the background might receive what we might call a more broad brush approach. I think it's important to keep all the modelling within the scene to a complementary standard, you know, and consistent of colouring. Your trees are individual models, but you've settled on common methods to build them, to coat florist wireframes with Artex, for example. Here in North America, I've had to adopt some of your techniques to locally available materials. I couldn't find anybody who had Artex, but I ended up finding a nice, flexible modelling paste from Liquitex that did the job for coating the armatures. But tell me how you settled on your approach What are the advantages to the system you devised and were there any techniques that you tried that didn't work and why did you reject those? Sourcing suitable wire has often been a problem and it often relied on what could be found or scrounged. Also, it invariably needed to be untwisted. If you've got a a twist of wire, electrical wire, for instance, it had to be untwisted to get the separate strands. For my approach, I, I prefer to work with single wires and I came across florist wire, which until I found it online, I didn't realise how thin I could buy it. And being paper covered, it made the twisting a lot easier. 
and the paper covering much easier to accept the bark mix that I paint on later. Oh, I'm sure that your use of flexible modelling paste for the bark is a fine substitute for Artex. I mean, the main criteria here is just to use a material that would stand up to a small amount of flexing without cracking. Artex is designed to be a flexible plaster, so your modeling paste would have much the same effect. Yes, I've noticed that. If I bump the trees, they don't break and things like that. So were there any techniques you tried that just didn't work out? Anything that was a disaster? No, not really. I think the conventional way of making a tree... um, Oh, started many years ago by George Eilis Stokes. He used twisted steel cable, the sort you use for control cables on aircraft. Really tough stuff. He used to unravel all this and then retwist it. Now, his modelling was excellent and he set a standard for many years, but when I tried some of this with an old steel tow cable, it was really hard work and it never really worked for me at all. I was never satisfied with the results. I've also tried electric cable, but like the steel cable, it still had to be untwisted first. And I much prefer working with just single strands and twisting those up. And before I settled on Artex, I tried at various other types of plaster and that didn't really work. It crumbled away a bit. I think the consistent part of it is the foliage. I've always found foliage matte from Woodland Scenics or Hecky always to be ideal once it's all teased out. The only thing that's sort of improved possibly in more recent years is I've had a bit more confidence in teasing it out a lot further. It's just surprising how far you can stretch it, tease it out, and then later sort of using postiche, theatrical hair, which is another thing that can it comes as like a plaited rope, but that can be teased out incredibly finely. So to go for much finer trees, that's been a real boon. I haven't actually tried the pastiche yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that on some of my trees. I mentioned your layout in the introduction. If I recall from articles in Model Railway Journal magazine, you've been working on this layout for about two decades. Can you tell us a little bit about it and why you selected the unusual 1 to 50 scale for it instead of uh, British O scale 1 to 43 or something that's maybe more popular? Yes, certainly, yeah. My wife Maggie and myself became aware of this. It was a meter gauge railway in Brittany after a cycling holiday in that area. Well, we crossed old railway tracks from time to time, but we only discovered that it was part of the railway known as the Réseau Breton after we got home. Maggie's fluent in French. She used to teach it. And we were looking for a completely fresh modelling project, something really different. So we returned to Brittany and started to carry out some research. There's quite a few structures left and the track beds we could walk along and all bits of rolling stock to measure and photograph. So we gradually started to sort of get a feel for what the railway was like in its environment and having measured and photographed the bits we could find, started to make some models. And there was absolutely nothing commercially available. So knowing that we were going to have to start from scratch with everything, we chose a scale that seemed to work for us. And 1 to 50 seemed easiest with all the metric dimensions. It made the maths a lot easier than um, converting... In the case of a French railway, it would be a case of converting it first to feet so that we could say that 7 millimetres is every foot for our conventional 7 mil scale. And it just seemed, you know, much easier to divide the metric dimensions straight into 50 so that 20 millimetres is the same as a metre. And it's quite close to your quarter inch of the foot, of course. The track gauge I use is actually 18.2. 
using the British EM standards, 18mm standards. And these are a little bit narrow, but I can cope with that. And also, I've got all the wheels and track gauges available, as they would be for 4mm models. Our trips over to Brittany to do the research meant we had to sort of rent somewhere to stay, and we found a little cottage. And as it turned out, it was a little village called Penpool. So, although the railway never passed anywhere near that, our scene was totally fictitious. We adopted the name for the layout. The whole layout's about 20 foot long, split into five four-foot baseboards to make it easy for transportation, and it's solely for exhibition use. We haven't got space at home to put it up, but fortunately there's numerous modern railway exhibitions over here, so we usually get a chance to take it out about six times a year. I guess when you're working on it at home, then you pull out one section at a time and do some work on that and then store it. Is that how it works? Yes, it is. It was actually quite awkward to work on because I couldn't put the whole thing up at one time. I had to literally put two baseballs together, work across that joint. It was certainly a bit of a problem when it came to ballasting the track and getting the scenic work to sort of flow across the baseball joints and even came to hiring a hole in the end just to set it up to see that we were on the right track before we got it all finished. So it wasn't the easiest of projects from that point of view. I think next time I'll go for something a lot smaller, something I can put up at home. Well, it's certainly an impressive project. and You've actually written a book about these railways, haven't you? Yes, I got approached by Oakwood Press. They hadn't dipped their toe in the continental railway market at the time, and as I had a lot of research on the Réseau Breton, and it turned out I was doing a lot of drawings and plans in preparation for the layout. So I was able to use those, and it was a nice way of collating all my information, getting it all together into one source, and it seems to have been popular. I mean, if it has made the railway a little bit more sort of generally known to everybody, then, then that's, you know, fine by me. You just mentioned something interesting, that it was an interesting or a very useful way to collate all of your information about the railways into one place. Is that what prompted you to write the two books on tree modeling? Was it a need to get the techniques down in writing so that you could have a resource that you could refer to yourself? Or was it prompted by receiving comments at exhibitions? Or what prompted you to write the books on trees? No, that came from a completely different way. I was very fortunate in being asked to write the books on trees based on the experience of making the trees for Pen Paul. When I was actually sort of started planning it, it was just going to be one book, but it just grew because of the vast subject it was going to have to cover. And eventually the contents were split into two books. I have to say that working with Paul Carew at Wild Swan was a real delight in this sort of aspect. He's very enthusiastic modeler himself and very particular about getting all the sort of presentation of the books absolutely right. So it was, yeah, a really real pleasure working with him. Is there any aspect of scenery that you still want to put down in paper for all time or is two books set on trees? Yes, I am sort of starting to work on something else. It's a book on more landscape covering, um, the grasses and the, the gravel textures, paths and things, roadways. And it's something that I've enjoyed doing for my layouts over the years and gradually putting it together. And so that's what we're working on at the moment. 
Excellent. Something for me to look forward to. Just in closing, I imagine that well-modeled trees are particularly important when we show our layouts in public, especially to people who are not railway modelers. The trains may actually be less relevant to their experience than the trees. What are your thoughts on the importance of well-done tree models and scenery in general in elevating the general public's perception of model railways as a worthwhile hobby to pursue? I think that modeling anything beyond the railway fence or boundary helps to lift the general perception of the hobby and shows that we're not just focused on trains. For myself, this aspect is very important, if not more important than a passing train, because, as I said before, the, the scenery is always there. It also sets the scene. It gives it a location or a meaning. And, as you suggest, it's far more relevant to anybody not so conversant with railways. They still appreciate the modelling as a hobby in itself. I always think it's nice if a modelled area can be identified purely by the scenery and architecture without necessarily the intervention of the railway. After all, that was what was there first. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the way I like to sort of portray it myself. Gordon, thanks for joining me on the Model Railway Show today, and thank you for writing these books. They've been an inspiration to many, and they're helping me to fill space on my own layout with some truly stunning-looking trees. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you ever so much. I thoroughly enjoyed the experience myself. Trevor, I was astounded when you first showed me the cover of Gordon's book. I really thought I was looking at a real tree. I did too, and actually, the more I look at it, the more I'm convinced it is a real tree. But <laughs> no, they're actually model trees. He spends a lot of time building them, but they're spectacular models, and I found them very inspiring. I've actually started to use his techniques on my own layout. I am working up to the level of detail that he gets in a tree. You know, even if you never get there, the journey is worth it for the improvements you'll make in your current techniques. You bet. We're making a gag about them not being real trees. Remember the gag John Allen did years and years ago in Model Railroader where he had a full-sized model and he did a great giant ruler. Yes, and the and, big pencil. Yeah, and, and he yeah. passed it off as uh, really tiny little models. That could be what Gordon's done with the trees. But no, seriously, folks, have a look. We'll have a link to where you can purchase his books on our website and they're absolutely fantastic. We made a little bit of a joke earlier about getting your Master Model Railroader and your author certificates. Next time out, we are going to have an uplifting injection of youth that talks about that. As we mentioned last time, Joel Priest, at age 12, recently became the National Model Railroad Association's youngest ever master model railroader. He's pretty pumped about this, and he deserves to be. Joel has agreed to join Jim on our next show to tell us how he did it. In addition to Joel, I'll be chatting with Greg Amer, who isn't scared to share his fine-scale model work with youngsters. Trevor, I can't think of a better way to mark our 50th show than by acknowledging the youngsters who are going to carry our hobby forward for us. And here's a note for you globetrotters. If you're going walkabout in late March and you find yourself in Melbourne, Australia, be sure to visit the annual Australian Narrow Gauge Convention at Kawartha College. Details on our website. You'll see there are some great modelers and some great subjects to model in the land down under. In closing, thanks to Dave Woodhead for our theme music. Check out Dave's Narrow Gauge Modeling and his music on his website. Otto Von Drack is the man behind our great-looking website, and Chris Abbott is our man behind the mic. You know, Chris, you really moved to free up our desk space. For Jim Martin, I'm Trevor Marshall. Thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show. So long for now. Mm-hmm.